So before we begin, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer and make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come here tonight just because we need, know we need your word. We know that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed to us in your word who we are, who you are, and what you expect of us and what you have provided for us, that there's no way in which we can save ourselves, but that you and your mercy and your grace have provided a perfect and complete salvation for us, that we might have eternal life simply by trusting in Christ as our Savior. And Father, we just rejoice this evening about this little little guy, Matthias, and his uh, clear trust in you, clear expression of his trust in you. We pray that, that you might watch over him, protect him, that as he goes to a home that is not sympathetic to this, that, that this might be a real witness uh, to them and that through him uh, his parents might come to a clear understanding of the gospel. And, Father, we pray for others in that Good News Club and for their understanding of the gospel and that this could have a real impact uh, on that school and in this community. Now, Father, we pray for us as we study your word that you'd help us to understand what we're studying and reading and how this impacts our understanding of your, of your word and our world as well, especially in issues related to, to government. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to start off with a, just a little bit of review of where we are in uh, 1 Samuel. We're still in 1 Samuel 8. I've done a lot of background to 1 Samuel 8 to understanding this because it's a pivotal chapter, and it's pivotal not only because it emphasizes certain doctrinal truths about uh, government and politics, but it's also pivotal in the shift that is taking place in the history of Israel. And in this chapter, because they want to have a king like all the other nations, what we see is the contrast between the pagan or the human viewpoint idea of kingship and government and the, and the role of government in a nation versus the divine viewpoint uh, role of kingship. Now, the emphasis in the chapter isn't as much on the divine viewpoint, but that's what the challenge is because Israel is rejecting God and rejecting God's government over the nation in choosing a human viewpoint form of government. We've seen this little chart I put together. The first seven chapters focus on Samuel as the prophet, priest, and judge of Israel. Chapters 8 through 15 uh, describe the rise of Saul until his act of disobedience towards God. And then we see his decline as we see God preparing the next king, King David, who does not become king until we get into the first chapter of 2 Samuel. The three basic divisions in 1 Samuel are the first seven chapters where God prepares to deliver the nation of Israel by grace. In the second division, chapters 8 through 15, God establishes the office of king, and he's really doing it to teach Israel something about their own deficiency. So the the king that they receive is the king that fits what they want. And then the last part, God decreases the influence of Saul as he is increasing David, preparing David 
to be a ruler because David is a man after God's own heart. So in this chapter, the setting we've looked at, the people uh, come together, the elders of Israel come together, and they reject this hierarchical approach to the sons of Samuel passing on the judgeship because they have become corrupt. This is a basic problem in all human government. Human government itself, as we have seen, was established and instituted by God in the Noahic Covenant. But human beings are corrupt, and so a government is no better than the integrity of those who are governing. The second part, the elders meet with Samuel at Ramah and request to have a king like all the other nations. Samuel takes it personally in the third section, verses 6 to 9, and he takes it to God in prayer who tells him that it's God himself who's being rejected, and he tells Samuel to warn the people of their cons- of the consequences. And that's the last part of the chapter. Samuel tells the people, outlines what the consequences are going to be in terms of increased oppression by the king through taxation. I mean, this is one of the first clear passages that we have related to uh, the relation of money to power and government in the in uh, in the scriptures, and then um, that should be I keep meaning to correct that slide. First Samuel eight nineteen to twenty. The pe- people continue to reject the warning. They want to have a king like everybody else, and the Lord then tells Samuel to obey their voice. We saw that human government was established in the Noahic covenant in chapter. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 7, the mandate to punish those who commit murder is perhaps the most serious and sober responsibility given to mankind, and that has embedded within it the the recognition that man has the right to adjudicate in all other areas of of criminality. So a couple of points that I want to bring out before we get into the text itself. Just as a reminder, I have seven sort of seven points that we ought to think through. First of all, the divine institution of government was established by God, and as such, government is inherently good. Now the reason I make a point out of that is because in some circles of political theory, especially among some libertarians, They talk as if government itself is bad, but the scripture says government, it's good. It's those who are in the position of governing that are corrupt. So the divine institution is established by God and has God's authority. In the New Testament, this is laid out uh, more, more fully in Romans chapter 13. So both Old and New Testament agree that God instituted government and that those in authority are established by God. In the Old Testament, or point two, God's ideal form of government is represented in the Mosaic Law. Now, the Mosaic Law isn't given as a pattern that should be duplicated by other countries. It is unique to Israel because they were a distinct people to God. They're called a holy people, which means one of a kind, a distinct set-apart nation. They were to be a kingdom of priests. So the Mosaic Law is one form of of government that it would be based upon uh, based upon what scripture teaches about the nature of man as such it's not a, a a blueprint or template 
for every other kind of law, but it is a pattern that can that embodies uh, certain principles that can be used in in any in the development or the form of government in any other other nation. For example, you have various criminal penalties for uh, certain crimes. In the New Testament, those penalties are not uh, passed on. For example, adultery is a is a crime punishable by death under the Mosaic Law. In the New Testament, Jesus doesn't uh, reaffirm that. It's not restated in the New Testament for a couple of reasons. Number one, in the church, we're n- not no longer uh, part of a national entity. We're not equated to a national entity. We're a separate group that's multinational, multi-ethnic, spread out across across the world. And so we're not about uh, implementing a specific form of, of, of government. And the punishment for... Uh, someone caught in adultery is not going to be a, a capital crime. Same, same with some other areas. For example, under the Mosaic Law, a rebellious adolescent was to be uh, was to be presented by his parents. Evidence of his rebelliousness was supposed to be given by his parents, and then he was to be taken out into the public square and be stoned. Now, these kinds of penalties, a capital punishment for adultery, capital punishment by for a, uh, a rebellious adolescent, have a purpose behind them. They're not just an example of this hostile, uh, righteous, overbearing deity in the Old Testament that somehow wakes up and gets modified and, uh, by the New Testament, but God is showing that you have to protect the family, you have to protect marriage, and by emphasizing the horrendous nature of these violations of marriage and family, uh, you, you protect the national entity. In the New Testament, rebel, rebellion against one's parents is still a sin. It's still wrong. Adultery is still a sin and still wrong, but the penalty is, is not the same. And this shows that there's, that the Mosaic Law itself is a is a manifestation of one way to implement these divine absolutes. I remember in my first church, uh, assuming that people had been well taught because of who the previous pastors were, I got in trouble within the first uh, month or two of being there by making the point that the Ten Commandments was no longer relevant are no longer to be to be applied. And some people got their knickers in a knot because of that. And I had to go back and teach that that it wasn't the Mosaic Law that made uh, robbery or thievery or theft wrong. It wasn't the Mosaic Law that made murder wrong. Those were sins long before the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was simply a law code that instantiated penalties for those particular acts within the framework of national government. So the Mosaic Law gives us an, an idea of how a government is to function that, that emphasizes freedom and individual responsibility under the, the guidance of God. And as I pointed out through reference to the study by Donald Lutz over the last previous lessons, is this was clearly understood by the founding fathers of this nation. They weren't trying to establish a theocracy. Many people misunderstand and don't define theocracy accurately. It is the direct rule of a nation 
by a God either uh, directly or through prophets or priests. So Iran today is a theocracy, but Christian nations under under uh, since since the Reformation have not been tied where where religion was tied to the state, and the founding fathers who all operated within the framework of biblical Christianity were not seeking to establish a theocracy because they. The only revelation they had from God was the Bible. There's no direct guidance from God. It's not a rule of prophets or priests. And it was a rule by a people, a uh, rule over people on the principles, uh, principles of, of the Bible. So the Mosaic law must be understood as giving us certain ideas and, and concepts and patterns that can be implemented in different cultures, different nations around the world in terms of forming a government recognizing the legitimacy of the five divine institutions. A third, all forms of human government manifest the corruption of sin because those who govern are inherently corrupt. They're sinners. So there needs to be checks and balances. You can't give too much authority to any one uh, individual. Otherwise, he will take all authority for himself. This is why we have checks and balances built into the Constitution and why they have been consistently attacked over the last 200 uh, 225, 28 years, whatever it's been, 26 years. Fourth, what we learn from a panorama of Scripture is that there's only, only one time that we have perfect government, and that is when we have a perfect ruler. The ultimate perfect government in a perfect environment is that which is established by the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming, when as the messianic uh, son of David, he rules from the throne of David in Jerusalem, and we have the messianic or millennial kingdom. We have a perfect, sinless ruler, and he's going to rule in a perfect, sinless environment, and he's going to rule according to a perfect, sinless code of government. But guess what happens? What happens is at the end of a thousand years, Satan's going to be released and deceive millions and millions of people, and they're going to follow Satan in a rebellion against God. Because the inherent problem is not just the fact that we have corrupt rulers, but that we have corrupt people. And if you remember the old Walt Kelly cartoon strip called Pogo, you have uh, Pogo making the statement that we have met the enemy and he is us. Uh, we're the problem. And in a nation that doesn't recognize the reality of total depravity, the doctrine that all men are created sinners and they are corrupt and they are fallen, that doesn't mean they're as bad as they can be. It means that every aspect of their being has been corrupted by sin. They can do, still do relatively good things, but unless there are, uh, un unless there are incentives and uh, and punishments to keep them in line, they will always default towards corruption and degeneracy and greed and criminality. So the only time we have perfect government under the fourth point is when there's a perfect king. Fifth, in the Mosaic law, the ideal government is where God rules through his representatives, and there's, there's direct communication 
via the prophets and the priests. Uh, but the failure of the people to obey shows that the problem isn't in government per se. It's in sinful people, whether they're governing or whether they are the governed. Sixth point, we've seen in the book of Judges that Judges demonstrates that when the leadership, that's that section that deals with the judges from Othniel through Samuel, that when the, when the leadership is, becomes corrupted by human viewpoint or the people, and we see that in some of the episodes at the end uh, in relation to the corruption of the tribe of Benjamin, when the people become corrupt or the priesthood become corrupt, and that's that episode in Judges chapter 18 where you have the uh, Levitical priest who sets up an idol and turns out he's the grandson of Moses, that when the priesthood people, the priesthood and the leaders reject the authority of God, remember the key verse in Judges, there, there was no God in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When they reject the authority of God, then the culture crumbles and chaos results. Economic chaos, personal suffering, personal chaos, instability, uh, the breakdown of all of your uh, uh, basic uh, functions of government in terms of providing security, education, all of that falls apart uh, when you go into moral relativism. Everything always goes back to a spiritual condition. And then the seventh point is that the, the, historically the human counter to the position of no central authority, which is what we have in Judges, there's no central authority. Uh, the only judge who begins to, who is said to judge all of Israel is Samuel. So for all that period, you just had regional or tribal, uh, tribal authority in terms of the judges. But the human counter to the position of no central authority, um, or the position of divine authority is the authority of the state. So you have one position that says there's no central authority, no central human authority. Uh, everything is more like a confederacy. The other position is that the ultimate authority is God. If you reject those two positions, the only thing left is to invest full authority into the state. And that is called, in modern terms, totalitarianism, it's sometimes called statism, but it is the opposite of a government that allows for individual responsibility and freedom. And the principle that we find from Scripture is that without individual responsibility, there is no freedom. You have to give people the freedom to both succeed and to fail. And when the central government comes in and tries to protect them from the consequences of their sinful decisions, their irresponsibility, and their failures, then they also have to protect people or prevent people from having freedom to succeed. Because to limit the freedom to fail means you're limiting freedom. And when you limit freedom... You're limiting both the freedom to fail and the freedom to succeed because you can't make a decision ahead of time as to which will do which. And so this leads inevitably to reducing everyone in the society to the lowest common denominator where the government controls everything from cradle to grave, from womb to tomb, in order to uh, protect people 
from their own irresponsibility and their own sin. And at the core of that, there's a failure to recognize the reality of sin and the reality of of corruption. So when we get into any kind of political theory that moves in that direction, this inevitably leads to an idolatry of the state. This is exactly what we see outlined in this in this chapter. We we attribute to the state the power and responsibilities that are to go only to God. This is seen t- today, for example, in uh, we've seen it historically in, in states totalitarian states such as Germany and Italy, Japan during World War II. Japan was the most overt, where they uh, had uh, emperor worship. And they deified the the emperor, but they were deifying government in in Italy and in Germany as well. They did it under the communists in both Russia and later in China. Uh, you have this kind of deification or a form of it with the theocracy under the radical Shia uh, in uh, in Iran, and it always destroys freedom and people become irrelevant to the goal of the state. The state becomes all all consuming. Now, statism. I'm going to give you a couple of direction, uh, a couple of definitions. Statism, according to Wikipedia, is the belief that the state should control either economic or social policy or both to some degree. Statism is effectively the opposite of anarchism. Now, what do we have under? Under the situation with the with, with the judges in, ju- in in the book of Judges, it's uh, it, it's confederacy that deteriorates almost to the state of anarchy. Everyone, priests, leaders, judges, people, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no authority whatsoever, and so it leads to a complete breakdown uh, in, in in the society. The Alternative to that is to go to the other extreme, that to bring order out of chaos, you have to have a single powerful leader who can make all the decisions. And we eventually see that happen in human history when we come to the end times when it's the Antichrist uh, identified as the first beast who brings order out of chaos after the rapture uh, in the tribulation period. Now, the term statism got its popularity from Ayn Rand, and she said that uh, her definition was the political expression of altruism is collectivism. That's another term for socialism or statism, which holds that man's life and work belong to the state, to society, to the group, the gang, the race, the nation, and that the state may dispose of him in any way it pleases for the sake of whatever it deems to be its own tribal or collective good. That's the deification of the state, where the state controls everything. And that is what I was warned against in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. So we see that, that the divine institution of government is established, but we don't see a framework for that until we get to the Mosaic Mosaic Law. Now, let's just review what happens here at the beginning of 1 Samuel 8. Uh, Samuel is old now. Time's passed since 1 Samuel 7, and he's trying to set up a, a inheritance-based rulership where his sons are going to be the next judges, but they're corrupt. Uh, they have these names, uh, the name of Joel, uh, which means 
uh, Yahu is God, Yoel, El is a word for God, uh, and uh, Yo or Yah uh, means is a reference to Yahweh, so his name means Yahweh is God, but that's certainly not true in his life. And the second name, Abijah or Abiyah, Yah, J-A-H, is the first syllable in Yahweh, and Av is the word, the Hebrew word for father. The I is your first person suffix, so it's my father is Yah. So both of them have been named by Samuel in the hopes that they will serve the Lord, but they're not serving their Lord, they're serving themselves, and as such they have become uh, corrupt and they are perverting justice and they don't know what justice is because they've departed from the Lord who, according to Scripture, is the only source of judgment. And so they violated the commands in Exodus 18.21 and in Deuteronomy uh, 16.19 because they have perverted justice and the role of government is to provide mishpat or justice. Now, this is just a map we've, we've seen before. This was the circuit for Samuel that's mentioned at the uh, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 7. And then Beersheba is all the way down here in the south, just as you start to enter the Negev. My personal opinion, it looks like they got away from Daddy's control, and Daddy couldn't watch over them anymore, so they're just doing their own thing. Because it would take quite a while to ride a, a donkey or a mule and to come uh, come down here. So the people are rebelling against him, and the result is that the elders of Israel come together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Look, you're old. They're very tactful. You're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And this is where we start getting into some some real problems. And they have... Uh, They have several, I'm going to list three, mistaken assumptions that lie behind their approach. And the first is that they are assuming that the problem is the form of government. They're assuming that if they just change a government, that that will solve their problems. So let's just review where government comes from. We have this chart we've used before. First three divine institutions are set up before the fall. Individual responsibility. This is so important. It underlies everything else. Without personal responsibility and accountability, marriage will collapse and family will collapse. And we're seeing that in an in a incredible way before our eyes right now with these things that are taking place on college campuses and this exposure to a generation that uh, uh, I think uh, – 30% of this uh, college-age generation thinks that we need to do away with freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is ultimately a part of uh, personal responsibility and having the freedom to say what's good or what's bad and to control people at that level is a, a direct attack on the first divine institution. But when you're in arrogance and you're hypersensitive and you're self-indulgent, then you can't take it when somebody else disagrees with you. When we've all been around people like that, 
that when we begin to talk about something that doesn't fit their their pagan framework, that they react in, in tremendous anger and hostility because they can't handle someone who disagrees with them or states a different, a different view. After the fall, in fact, after the flood, you have two more divine institutions established, government with the Noahic covenant and the divine institution of nations after the Tower of Babel with the division of languages. Now, the first three were designed to promote productivity and happiness and advanced civilization, and the post-fall divine institutions of government and nations is designed to restrain evil. Once you start breaking down national distinctions, and that's exactly what we see happening with this open border concept and the failure to secure the borders. Once you do that, you start opening up a nation, you destroy its integrity, and you start opening up the nation to all kinds of chaos and internal collapse. And that is exactly what we're seeing. Anybody who fails to protect the border fails to recognize that immigration is the, the, one of the number top, if not number one, number one and a half problems facing this nation. If we don't secure the borders, this nation will be destroyed in less than a generation. And anyone who doesn't understand that doesn't deserve to be in public service at all, period. Then you have the role of government and the understanding that government biblically is service to the people. It is service to God and service to the people. It is not for self-aggrandizement. So these are the divine institutions. Now, the recognition by our founding fathers was that the type of government they established with the Constitution was a type of government that could not function apart from, apart from the morality of the people. See, the assumption, the false assumption that's being made here is that the leaders of Israel are looking out at their nation, and it's still in the period of the judges. They've had a measure of stability under Samuel, a measure of success, but they're still in a chaotic period. They're still, uh, they still haven't completely turned to God. They have sort of done a halfway approach, and God has begun to bless them, but it's still in a state a state of chaos and collapse. And they can't identify the real problem because they've re- they, they individually have rejected the revelation of God in terms of total depravity. This is the basic problem. That if you want to know a simple way to define the difference between a liberal and a conservative, it's how they view the nature of man. Liberals have an altruistic, uh, optimistic uh unrealistic view of man in that they view man as being basically good and that man can just be improved upon and government is the best tool to do that. So, But their basic problem is that man is basically good. Conservatives view man as being basically, uh, basically corrupt. He's basically evil. He's basically self-serving and that needs to be controlled and this is done through a righteous, uh, through a righteous government. When a people are corrupt and you don't recognize the reality of that corruption, 
then all you're going to do by your, because when you have a false analysis, you're going to come up with false solutions. And their false solution is that if we change the government, we'll solve the problem. But the government essentially is a righteous God with a righteous law. So by getting rid of the righteous demands of God and shifting to moral relativism, they're thinking they're going to solve all the problems. But in order for a nation to survive, uh, you have to have morality with the people. So this is what was understood by our founders. You have here Noah Webster, who said in his view, the Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. No truth is more evident to my mind than that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. And when you look at what they're saying, they're really talking about the Judeo-Christian system of ethics and absolutes that are grounded in the Old Testament. As I pointed out through the Lutz study, that the vast majority of the quotations that the Founding Fathers are going to in the Scripture are out of the Torah. They're, they're out of the Old Testament. He goes on to say, our citizens should early understand that the genuine source of correct Republican principles. Now, he's not talking about the Republican Party. He's talking about the view that this nation is a representative democracy or a republic, and that for a republic to survive, the people have to have individual responsibility, accountability, and morality. So he says the genuine source of correct Republican principles is, in, is the Bible, particularly the New Testament or the Christian religion. Charles Carroll, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, wrote in a letter to James McHenry on November 4, 1800, without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. When we look out at our nation, it is not a moral nation. Without morals, a nation will collapse. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free government. That is, those justices that we have serving on everything from local municipalities all the way up to, to the Supreme Court that are taking morality out of the nation are destroying the nation because a nation without personal accountability and responsibility and a set of absolutes that go outside of themselves will collapse very quickly. John Adams recognized this. He said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions. That's the sin nature, folks. In other words, government doesn't have enough power to deal with the sin nature, that evil that lurks in the souls of men if it's unbridled by morality and religion. It is the Christian faith that teaches morality, self-discipline, and self-control. He says, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And George Washington said, There's no truth more thoroughly established than that there exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness. Now, we founded this country, according to the Declaration of Independence, for the pursuit of life, liberty, and, the, and happiness. So happiness, though, in their understanding, wasn't just personal pleasure. It was a rich fulfillment in life, which can only come from, uh, from virtue. And without the development of virtue, you can't pursue 
happiness or real fulfillment in life. The New York Supreme Court in the late 19th century said the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity. The people whose manners and morals have been elevated and inspired by means of the Christianity. So if you don't have Christianity or a Judeo-Christian ethic, then the system collapses. Florida Supreme Court recognized this as well, stating that the Christian concept of right or wrong or right and justice motivates every rule of equity. It is the guide, that is the Christian concept of right or wrong, the biblical ethic is the guide by which we dissolve domestic frictions and the rule by which all legal controversies are settled. It's not Sharia law, folks. It's not the Quran. It is the Bible that's the source of freedom, and freedom goes with responsibilities in this country. So we conclude from this that the people who rule a nation reflect the values of the citizens of the nation. Therefore, a nation's character is reflected in the character of its rulers. To put that more briefly, we get the leaders we deserve. And we get the leaders that reflect the majority values of the nation. Now, there are a lot of people, I believe, in this nation who don't go along with the values of the political elite. But if they don't take the responsibility to be involved in the political process at the very least just getting out to vote, and the, the, the percentage of, each, of alleged evangelical Christians that have not participated in the election, have not voted in 2008 or 2012, is, is, is huge. It, it's, it's like 30%. And if Christians do not get involved in the culture, then it will be destroyed. It will self-employ self-implode. So the first assumption they had was that a change in government would solve problems. The problem isn't government. The problem is the sin nature of the people. The second thing they wanted is they wanted to have a king like all the other nations. This is clearly seeking a a lower standard than the one that God had given them. God wants them to be above all the nations. They are going to be a priest priestly kingdom over all the nations, a priest kingdom for all the nations. So God is a God who is a -a one-of-a-kind God, and they were to be God's special possession, unlike any other nation. They are distinct. They're unique. If we transfer that over to the New Testament, it's every believer is unique because of our identification with Christ. We become a royalty. We're part of the royal family of God. We're identified with Christ in an inseparable way, and we are to live as spiritual royalty. We are ambassadors from heaven, but we have a dual citizenship. We have a citizenship in heaven, but it doesn't replace our human citizenship or human responsibilities. That's what Romans 13 is all about. We're to be involved in obedience to government. We're to pay taxes even when we deem the taxes to be unjust, we're still to be, participate in the the civil process of this world until the Lord uh, until the Lord takes takes it out of us. Now, when they said we want to have a king like everybody else, we need to think about what that means to be like all the other nations at that time. And that time, what you have in the ancient world is basically the idea that the government, the state, is divine. 
we can call it divine kingship. It manifested itself a little differently in different, uh, different cultures. In Egypt, the Pharaoh is the, the divine incarnate. He is God. He rises to that level. In the Mesopotamian area, the kings were thought of as, as sons of God, but they are representative so that the kingdom, the state itself, is the source of ultimate authority. The state is God, and the people exist only to serve the state. The people, the individuals, are basically irrelevant. And this is based on a metaphysical view, on a spiritual view, that all reality is part of what was called the chain of being. This chain of being basically says that everything from amoeba to God all share in the same essence, the same existence. It's a, it's a chain of being. It's an early form of evolution, that they're all basically part of that chain of being, and there's no distinction. So I developed this chart to contrast the two sides. This is the biblical view on your left, and it is, I really should switch this and put the correct view on the right and the wrong view on the left, but on the left side here, we have God, who's biblical, biblically God is a personal, infinite creator God. The older I get, the more I observe from Scripture, the emphasis again and again and again through the Old Testament is God saying that he is the creator. This shows that creation is not a peripheral doctrine. Creation, a biblical form of creation, ex nihilo creation by God who not only forms everything out of nothing, but then he forms it and shapes it for the, inhabit, for the habitation of mankind. He forms in six days, and we believe that that is a, a recreation, that he, there's an initial creation, Genesis 1-1, then there's the fall of Satan between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and then you have, and it's not a long time period there. That, 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 this view goes back to the, at least the Targum of Jonathan in the, in the second century, and it was co-opted by, uh, by certain uh, certain creationists who were being influenced by evolution and historical geology in the early 1800s, and they said, well, we have this, this view where there's a gap between the creation of the original universe and the restoration. We'll just jam 50,000 years in there, because at that time, that's how old they thought the earth was. Well, it went from 50,000 to 500,000 to 5 million to whatever it is today, and so you, that became known as the old age gap view. And that is not correct because it assumes that, that, that geology today comes up with truth in terms of the age of the earth. And it doesn't. There have been numerous studies. ICR's done them, our speaker at the Chafer Conference this year. And he was our speaker, I think, in 2010, uh, is Dr. Steve Austin. He's done numerous studies within geology, and, and has talked about those. You can go back and find those, those uh, lectures that he gave at the Chafer Conference in 2010, which show that all of these dating mechanisms that evolutionists use are flawed in incredible ways, and they don't arrive at truth. So what happened was you had theologians who came along and said, this is true, the Earth's old. Well, that wasn't true. 
But they, when they assumed it was true, they had to find a place to put it, so they rammed it and crammed it and jammed it between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. There's a gap there, but it's a short gap. The earth is a young earth, and it was during that time that Satan fell. That's the only place that we can really put it and be consistent with other things other things in Scripture. So God is the creator God who creates everything. He's the one who creates people. He creates a, the whole idea of social structure comes from this triune personal God. There's always a society in the Trinity that goes to eternity past. And so God is both personal and he's infinite. And he is totally distinct from the universe. So I have this this black bar here which indicates his complete separation. It's, in theology, it's called the creator-creature distinction. He is totally distinct from the universe that he creates. He's not part of its being. That's the problem you have with all evolutionary systems, all the ancient world mythologies and cosmogenies, is that the, the, the universe is made out of the being of the God. So in biblical Christianity, Judeo-Christian uh, origin, God is completely distinct from the universe, and he creates uh, matter and energy. He then created vegetation, then created animals, and the crown of his creation was human beings created in his image and likeness. But now when you get over here on the right side, in all pagan thought and in evolutionary thought, the only infinite that you have is the universe. You have this impersonal, infinite universe, and then out of this that exists eternally, which is nothing more than, uh, than, than matter itself, then you have everything else derived. So any gods are part of that matter, part of that original uh, matter, whatever it was. And then man is simply a, a smaller form of God. They're still part of the same chain of being. And then so is nature. So all of these are are connected. And this is very, very important to understand that this then has a great impact on your understanding of ultimate being and authority. Now, the other thing that I want to point out from this chart is that when you start talking to people about different issues related to government and to all the issues related to the decisions we make with government, laws, things of that nature, I use this, this iceberg illustration, and that up here you see one-tenth of the iceberg above the surface, and that's where most discussion takes place. We argue about uh, what to do about certain refugees, we argue about whether or not to intervene in war against ISIS or not. We, we argue about uh, abortion policy. We argue about uh, issues related to capital punishment. We argue about uh, what we're going to do in terms of marriage. And that is all up here and above the surface. But all of those discussions presuppose certain things. And whenever you uh, start... I have to recognize there's a logical sequence that starts at the bottom, that what you see at the top is going to be based on what's at the bottom. So that's the order. So first of all, you have to look at the foundation for all thought. 
And the foundation for all thought goes back to what we think about ultimate reality. Ultimate reality, is there a God or isn't there? Is there, is what eternal is, is what is eternal only matter, purely material or energy or, or nothing? And the Big Bang theory, which is the dominant theory today, is you go back and you keep pushing time back and you go back about 20 billion years and what you have is this extremely dense matter that is not very big, but it's extremely dense and for some unexplained reason, it explodes. Now, we all know that when matter explodes, when anything explodes, you go look at what an IED does to a convoy in Iraq, or you look at what happens when you have a big explosion down at one of the refineries in Texas City. We all know that that really improves everything. It moves from uh, disorder to order, right? Every explosion always makes things more organized. Not at all. It, it doesn't make anything more, more organized at all. And so the problem that we have is that we, when we look at metaphysics that starts off with the Big Bang Theory, you not only are starting with an impersonal ultimate reality, which can't explain uh, individual personality, it ex- can't explain uh, individual uh, personhood and the value of individual person. Everything is, is just matter. There's nothing like such as soul or life. It's inorganic. It can't explain the rise of, of organic matter from inorganic matter. And not only that, it, it, it basically utilizes a form of knowledge that is irrational. How can an explosion produce order? Evolutionists believe it can. That's irrational. That's illogical. You can't point to anything in experience, history, the known universe, where an explosion takes you from order, from disorder to order. And an explosion just creates more disorder. So they have a metaphysic that doesn't fit with reality, and they have a form of knowledge that is fundamentally irrational and illogical. And that's going to lead to an ethic a statement of right or wrong that they can't ground in anything but the existence of a dense piece of matter. And so they can't ultimately say that something is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. Now, when you go up this, then you have to make political, national, individual decisions. And if you're starting from the wrong foundation, you're always going to end up with bad decisions. And if your starting point excludes sin and depravity, then you can't have a kind of government that produces righteousness because it doesn't understand righteousness. It can only come to uh, grips with something that is, or express something that is purely utilitarian. Okay, let me go to the... So, we come to verse 6, and Samuel's reaction is it displeased him. Literally, it means that Samuel thought this was evil. He thinks it's evil because it is it is evil. Now, pop quiz. What how does the Bible define evil? Again and again and again. You go through kings, you go through all those kings. So and so followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. What was it that they did? They worshipped idols. 
They set something up to worship in place of God. That's how the Bible fundamentally defines evil. So Samuel is recognizing what's going on here. They're supplanting God with with something else. Now, this is what happens in verse 7. God says to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. So the ultimate issue here is not that they want monarchy versus theocracy. The issue is that they don't want God having anything to do with their day-to-day life. It is a rejection of God. And what it, how does God go, go on to explain this in verse 8? According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? This is a little reminder. Remember, I defeated all the gods, all the idols of Egypt back with the ten plagues. Uh, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me, and what? Served other gods. So here's the issue. It's idolatry. It is, re- it is rejecting God to follow after other gods. That's why Samuel recognizes it's evil. It's idolatry. And this is what happens when a culture rejects God is they are replacing God with the details of life uh, that, that they value within that culture, and it is a form, form of idolatry. Now, that brings us sort of down to where we get the uh, statement, the summary of what's going to happen. There's some more things I want to say about that, so I want to go ahead and just stop at this point, and then we will start with verse uh, 9 uh, coming back next week. Uh, actually, not next week, but the week after that. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think through of what you've said in relation to government, in relation to politics, in relation to leadership. We recognize that our our nation really stands on the threshold of either repenting, changing, going back to the way the founders established this nation, or going forward into chaos and destruction. And we pray for your grace. We pray that the truth will be clearly proclaimed that those who are in the media that continue to uh, announce uh, falsehood through the various channels that they have, that their voices would not be heard. We pray for uh, leaders who are believers, who are oriented to establishment truth and the divine institutions, that you would raise them up, and that as they proclaim truth, that there would be a resonance in the hearts of this nation so that we will see a new leadership uh, come forward. Not that that is uh, the ultimate solution, but it is the start of a solution. And we pray that you might continue this, because this is a nation that continues to send out missionaries, that is a source of the gospel for many people, millions and millions of people throughout the world, as well as within this nation, and that this nation might continue that we might be a bulwark of support for Israel as well as a nation that is uh, a, a source of the gospel truth for all people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.